you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. Um, I love Exodus. You know, they've made movies of it, uh, and, and it kind of reads like a movie almost. And if, if it was a movie, you know, so far in chapters 1 and 2, we, we see the problem, right? The people in need of rescue, the Israelites, God's people are, are in slavery, and, um, and the villain, we've met the villain, the Pharaoh of Egypt, who is carrying out a pseudo-genocide against God's people, but we have yet to meet the hero. And some of you are like, but we've met Moses. Guys, Moses is not the hero. He's like the sidekick, all right? We are about to meet the hero of the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take, off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Please pray with me. God, I pray now that as we stand under your word, it would speak to us, that we could catch a glimpse of you, that we could know you more, and that that, that knowledge would result in right living and right worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to talk to you guys about something that's been totally freaking me out for the last few weeks. Um, I, we took our kids to the uh, Science Center, which we often do, but we like sprung for the tickets for the planetarium. And the planetarium was having a presentation like, a, like one of those things with the dome screen, you know, on black holes, right? And fascinating, and it's, it's all stuff I guess I've heard before, but they really lay it out for you, you know? And one thing they were able to convey was just how stinking gigantic the universe is, all right? Like, it was, it, it, like, when I say it, it's not even going to convey it. You're all just going to be like, that's big, but we don't really get how big, you know what I mean? Try this one. Our galaxy, from end to end, is 52,580 light years. What that means is if light departed from one side of our galaxy, it would get to the other side in 52,580 years. That's what a light, it's how far light travels in a year. That is so 
far. You know? Like, and, and this is going to mess with you more. That's one galaxy. Do you know how many observed galaxies there are, like counted galaxies? To this point, 100 billion, give or take. All right, this might help, because I could just, like, like I was, they were doing all this, and they're, like, taking you on a spaceship or whatever, and you're just flying past all these things, and it's like, that's a galaxy, right? Um, <laughs> and they were talking about black holes. At the center of our galaxy is what's called a supermassive black hole. You know what a supermassive black hole is? It's a black hole that's supermassive. <laughs> this particular black hole that just fits comfortably within the galaxy because there's lots of room for it. Do you know how big it is compared to our sun, which we would all agree is big? 4.5 billion times the size of our sun, a black hole. Yeah, right? Are you crazy yet? Have you lost it? Has your mind snapped trying to get your mind around the titanic size just of our galaxy? Like, I can't, I started to have, nearly have a panic attack, and they were like, oh my gosh. I, it, it just, I was, as I was trying to, to get my mind around this, it was just too big to comprehend, you know? And that's just our galaxy, not let alone a hundred billion of them that we've counted so far. And then something kept me up at night, quite literally kept me up at night. Just go with me here. That's like, what makes my mind break is of manageable size for God. Right? Like, we believe there's a God who made all this. Like, that all works for him. Not struggling to comprehend the hugeness of the universe. It, it, <laughs> this is so dumb, but it works. Do you guys remember those movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Inner Space? Where, where human beings get shrunk down to microbe size, right? If you were to take a human being, like if I were shrunk down to microbe size and you put me in a Starbucks, I don't even know I'm at Starbucks, right? Like there's nothing in there that's like, oh, I'm at Starbucks now, let's hang. It's just, you know, it's infinitely huge to me. But for me, normal size, Matt, like Starbucks is great. Totally manageable. It's the right size. The chairs are made for me, the coffee. I'm getting hungry now. I always do this to myself when I talk about food during a sermon. So like our galaxy and our universe that is so mind-boggling to us, God's like, oh, it's like Starbucks to me. It's the right size. It fits. You guys with me here? You know what I'm saying? So as I was sitting there, you know, with that, that film running in my head and, and thinking about, like, that works for God. And then I thought about just how infinitesimally small our whole planet is. And, like, I'm infinitesimally, you are infinitesimally small on the planet. You, see what I'm saying? Like, the size of God, the greatness of God, is just completely unfathomable. I can't fathom his creation, much less him. It's like, how could I have a relationship with a God who operates on that scale? Like, could I have a relationship with the supermassive black hole? It would be a short one, I think. <laughs> you know? I can't know the black hole. It's, it's not the right size. It doesn't, right? You, you see what I'm saying? Like, and God operates on that 
scale, and we don't even show up in a picture of the universe. And then to think like, what could my life matter to a God like that? Like, I'm worried about health, I'm worried about finances, I'm worried about what have you, and you are too. Like, does that rate, does that show up? How could that show up on his radar? Well, the amazing thing, and it's a lot, the, the unfathomable claim of the Bible is that the God who exists on that scale not only cares about this speck and the specks on it, you and me, but he actually steps into it. I, I don't know if you noticed in verse 7, where it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. And then in verse 8 it says, I have come down. Now, that's an idiom. It doesn't mean like he came directionally down. It means that God entered in to humanity's affairs. That's the claim here, right? And let's just, let, we're going to back up and show, like, take a look at how Moses encounters this God, this God who operates on this universal scale. How does he, uh, how does he enter it? In verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, to give you some idea of what Moses was experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis, this was a palace kid. We know he grew up in the, in the, the royal palace in, in Egypt, and, and then he had to flee for his life. And for the last several decades now, he has been married to the daughter of a herdsman, and become a herdsman himself. And can we get that aerial view? Um, remember, this is Egypt, lots of green, lots of buildings, lots of stuff going on. He's over here now. It's a lot of beige, <laughs> right? And, uh, and this is a very water-scarce area, and so he goes to a place in the highlands that's known to this day, it's used by Bedouins because there's reliably water there. There's even some fruit trees and bushes there. And so, uh, in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So, how does God start to step in? Well, first of all, we, we hear named the angel of the Lord. A lot of us who have read the Bible are like, what's the angel of the Lord? And it never really gets unpacked. Okay, it's a little tricky. Just just track with me. The angel of the Lord is the presence of God. It's also not the presence of God totally. The best analogy I could come up with is if you saw Iron Man 3. Did everybody see Iron Man 3? Guys, gotta see Iron Man 3 so that this works better. <laughs> all right, so you guys all know who Iron Man is. He has the iron suit on and he flies around and does good deeds. Well, in Iron Man 3, there's this scene where all these people are falling out of a plane, so Iron Man flies in, he saves all the people, and then he flies across a bridge and gets hit by a truck, the suit explodes, and we find out, and this isn't a real spoiler, we find out that Tony Stark, Iron Man, has actually been controlling the suit remotely, right? Like, during the scene, you see him inside the suit, and he's like, okay, let's go get this, and so you think he's inside the suit, actually, he's remote, but the suit was, like, experiencing all that, and does, does it make sense? Okay. 
That's kind of what the angel of the Lord is, right? It, 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 God is there. The presence of God is there, but not totally, all right? But we also see that, like, God makes himself visible. And the word appeared. The, the words see and appeared, they're actually the same root in Hebrew. And they're, they're, they're the, if you were to look at, at how many times that root appears in these couple of verses, it's again and again and again. It's saying God made himself seeable for Moses, right? He, he comes down, he makes himself small enough to be experienced by Moses, right? Like me trying to grasp the, the galaxy and my mind nearly explodes. If, if God had showed up in his entirety, we're told in the scriptures, no man can see God's face and live. So what does God do? He, he comes down, right? He makes himself manageable for Moses and the angel of the Lord showing up. Now, look at God's first act. He calls Moses to relationship. It says, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, this had to be the most exciting thing that's ever happened to a shepherd in that part of the world. Like, you have to imagine, there's not much entertainment value in the beige. And like a, a burning bush in and of itself, it's like, ooh, burning bush, I'll stare at that for a while, sure thing. And then the fact that it was burning and unconsumed, right, even better. Like this was, this was the highlight of his life. Um, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. You hear that? There's a call and a response. The relationship begins. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, right, so taking your sandals off, uh, to this day in many places is a sign of respect and reverence for the sacred, all right, especially in the ancient Near East. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So he not only makes himself of manageable experience for Moses, he also identifies himself. Do you notice how he does it? Because you have to remember, for the Israelites and for Moses, uh, they were growing up, there was no such thing as the Bible. Right? This was before there was a Bible. This was before there was a priesthood. This was before there was anything carrying down the stories uh, of what God had done so far. Right? They, they may have had some awareness, yeah, our ancestors had a God, but Really, they'd been enslaved for a long time. Now they had been in Egypt for hundreds of years. Most likely, they were Egyptian pagans, right? That's all the big buildings, everything around you was reinforcing the idea. There were many gods, and so if you're like, hey, I'm a god, your first question, if you were them, would be, which one? Okay, so God identifies who he is. He is Abraham's god. He is Isaac's God. He is Jacob's God. He's the God who did all that stuff for them. Okay? First thing that we see is that this infinite God, he comes down to our size. You know, it's like um, my kids like to build pillow forts. And sometimes they get really good ones going. You know, very elaborate. There's like a, an economy going on in there, quite literally. They're like, we buy, sell, trade, have wars with our neighbors. It's a whole thing going on. 
And then when they're really proud of when they invite me in, there's a problem. If I go into their pillow fort, that's the end of the pillow fort, right? So I just kind of have to like poke my head and shoulders in and like hang out with them like that. That is what God is doing here. He is coming down to our sides. And of course, this isn't the end of the Bible. We see that this infinite God actually becomes a human being in the person of Jesus later in the story. Just let that sink in for a second. The God who operates on this universal scale makes himself small enough to enter our world. And that's hard to fathom because we're so small. <laughs> we're so small that, that we can, it, it, when we see things in perspective, you know, of us in the galaxy, it's hard to believe that we could possibly matter. I, I, I want to show you guys a, a picture of Earth. Ready? There it is. It's a little dim. Do you see Earth? It's there. If, if the, our light differential is not great right now. But that's Earth. Taken in 1990 from Voyager 1. <laughs> from Voyager 1, uh, which was a, a satellite we launched in 1977, and that is Earth from 6 billion miles away. Which, by galactic standards, is not that far. That sounded like Star Trek right then, galactic standards. <laughs> now, um, there was an astrophysicist and author, Carl Sagan, wrote a book inspired by that. Uh, called Pale Blue Dot, because that's what shows up. It's just a pale blue dot. And the, it's a long and famous, um, famous quote where he talks about just the utter, utter unimportance of us, of our planet and everything. He says this, Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, he's trying to say, let's not kill each other and let's take care of the planet, which are all fine things. But his main point is, look how small you are. That's, we're nearly invisible. On a, we vanish on a galactic scale, and we super, our galaxy vanishes on a universal scale. How could we possibly think that we matter? Right? Like, like I don't know if we've ever, ever stopped and think about how tiny we are. That in the grand scheme of things, like, when we're this tiny, how can we believe that our, our strivings, our wars, our, our history, our greatest achievements, our... Our worst deeds matter at all. Does, like, when we look at that, doesn't it mean it's all inconsequential? It's actually even captured in the Bible. In, in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Now, there is a certain amount of appropriate humility that comes from this realization. But for the psalmist, he didn't know about all this. He was just standing on the, you know, looking at the night sky and saying, wow, what do we matter compared to all of that? 
And we might think, well, hey, a God who operates on that level, do we even matter? Are we worth noticing? Are we kidding ourselves that a God who operates on that level would care for us, would care for me, would care about the problems in my life or how my family's doing or my fears? And the amazing thing is we see that he does. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. What does God in his own words say? I have seen, I have heard, and I know. And this isn't just a general. Right? He says, I've heard their sufferings because of their taskmasters. He's aware of the taskmaster situation. right? The granular details of what's going on with his people. This is not a God who looks at the universe and says, they don't matter, but a God who is intimately involved. He comes down to our rescue. Now, it, it does seem like we're too small to care about, right? I hear what Carl Sagan's saying, but think about it like this. Uh, when, when we first found out we were pregnant with our first kid, uh, we went for a sonogram. It was too, too early to, to see anything. You could just kind of maybe hear things. And, you know, what was she the size? We were told she's the size of like a grain of rice or something like that, right? We didn't know it was a girl, actually. Your baby's the size of a grain of rice. Tiny little thing in my wife. And around the same time, because we, we decided to take life seriously now that we were pregnant, we got a Volvo station wagon, which is... A good move if you want to take life seriously. Volvo station wagon servers you right up. I want to point out that the Volvo station wagon is much bigger than my embryonic daughter. Or that might be even be zygote daughter. The zy whatever. You guys know. You scientists and whatnot. But size competition, Volvo's way bigger. Do we all agree that much? I know that much about science to know that that's much, much more matter, much bigger. Now, for me, do, do you suppose that I was sitting there thinking about my new Volvo? It was an old Volvo. It was like 20 years old, just to be clear. But it was new to us. It was much bigger. Were my thoughts occupied by the Volvo? Was my soul moved by its smooth hydraulic action on the lift gate? Little. But it was nothing compared to how this little grain of rice captured my heart and my wife's heart. And our thoughts and our, our, the plans for our life, we were wrapped around that little grain of rice, not the Volvo, even though it was much, much bigger, right? It says, as G.K. Chesterton once said, it is futile to argue that man is small compared to the cosmos. Man always was small compared to the nearest tree. Small as we are. The infinite God is concerned with us. Just because we're not spatially the center of the universe does not mean that God is indifferent to us or that God operates like that. Just like I, the, all the Volvos in Sweden can't compare to that grain of rice in terms of capturing my heart. Jesus goes further. He says, your Father in heaven knows when a sparrow falls from a tree. 
Like, you can't see a sparrow from space. You can't see you from space. Yet God knows. One of the things that might help is to understand that this, this God who oper operates on this scale is also able to operate at the microbe scale. He's not limited like we are. He understands both. And the question is, why? Why is God paying attention to his people? Because, you know, just because someone pays attention to you doesn't mean they wish you well. Right? Ne attention can be negative. I remember a story from the First World War. There was this new recruit, I forget his name, like Private Douglas. Just say that's his name. And, you know, he and the new recruits meet their commanding officer. It's like, into the trenches with you, boys. And, and uh, the, the commanding officer would often just poke his head into the barracks. Is Douglas okay? Yes, Douglas is fine. And then he'd, he'd uh, you know, after a barrage, he'd come down to their end of the trench. Was Douglas hit? And no, no, Douglas is fine. And, and after a while of this, you know, Private Douglas was saying to his, uh, his, his fellow soldiers, his, his uh, what do you call them? I forget. Anyway, his fellow soldiers, he was like, hi, oh, the commanding officer seems to be really nice, seems to care for me like a son. And, and the other guys just start cracking up. It's like, what's funny? He's like, you idiot. He bet that you'd be the first recruit killed. That's why he's asking after you so much. <laughs> why is God paying attention? Look at verse 8. It says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and a bunch of ites. We, we see the major movement of Exodus is what? That God sees the suffering of his people in bondage and he sets them free, not to just be like, whatever, not to enslave them, but to bring them into relationship with himself. That is the major movement, not just of Exodus, but of the entire Bible. When we look at the Bible as a whole, what we see is that Christ comes in fulfillment of God's plan to set us free from bondage to sin, to death, and the brokenness of the world. And what? And bring us to, into relationship with himself. That as hard as it is to fathom, this infinite God comes down to make us his. Not only is he seeing us, not only is he concerned with us, but he has a plan to be in relationship with us. Much in the same way that, you know, I wasn't just paying attention to, to the, the grain of rice and the other grains of rice that came after. Like, I was eager for relationship with them. I wanted to be their father and them to be my children. And that's what happened. It worked out. You, you may have a hard time imagining that a God who operates on this, I don't even know what to call it, cosmic scale, is that fair? Cosmos captures it, would care about you, about your sicknesses, about your fears, about your hopes, about your life, about your dog. But he does. This is what we're told in God's word. What's the right response Well, if, if I were to say, hey, uh, tomorrow, or, you know, I'll give you some time. 
Next week, the president's coming to your house. That's too controversial. Beyonce's coming to your house. <laughs> All right? Now, she's coming over. She's not going to bring her entire entourage. Probably couldn't fit. Just like her and Jigga. Um, what? Is that bad? It's fine, right? Jay-Z. Is that, that's translatable, right? There we go. <laughs> and, uh, and so I don't know what you'd do. Some of you might start cleaning up. I for sure would. I better clean this place up. Some of you might do a little research into what Beyonce might like to eat. And hopefully you, you're capable of making that. She's from Houston. Maybe some easier things in there. But I don't think any of us would do nothing, right? Like none of us would be like, whatever. Who cares? Beyonce's coming over. Right? I'm not even going to clean up the socks on the floor. <laughs> if the infinite God comes down to us, look how Moses responds. He's told, take off your shoes. And when he finds out who, who this God is, what does he do? He doesn't even look. He, he says, yes. He says, here I am. When God calls him, but he also approaches with great reverence. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't take it lightly, does he? I think the phrase here is reverent intimacy. Right? Intimacy is to know someone more and more deeply, and reverence is to treat them with great respect. I think often we could, we could be a little too casual in relating to God. I, I think often we can lose sight of this, you know, the fact that he operates at this cosmic scale that, that we are, you know, this, this speck on a speck. Like, it, it should make us humble. It should make us treat God with great reverence. And sometimes, you know, I could show up to worship, like, da, 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 I didn't like that song, da-da-da-da-da, this sermon sucks, whatever. <laughs> and... And just kind of be not very conscious of what we're doing. Not aware that we stand in the presence of this holy God. And I will tell you, I am partly to blame. We do have an informal environment, right? Like, and we do emphasize the grace and love of God, as we should. But there needs to be another element to that intimacy. There needs to be another element to that Let's approach God with confidence, and that's holy fear and reverence. Even more important than that is, is many people who would self-identify as a Christian, actually in their life there is no evidence of any respect for God, right? It's, I make up my own ethics. I like the bits of scripture I like, and I'm going to take some, and I'm going to leave the others. That's not how you treat God's holy word. We don't conduct ourselves in any way and use what God has given us for any purpose that we see fit, we instead say, what does it look like to revere God in my sex life, with my money, in my speech, how I treat other human beings? What does that look like? What does it look like to live like I actually believe there is this God who grasps the universe and yet loves and cares for me and died for me. And also, it's to respond with, by, by, by pursuing intimacy with God. For some of you, you might have an easy time with the, oh yeah, oh yeah, I have reverence for God. <laughs> you know, like, 
yes, please, God, I understand you're in charge. But you have a harder time with the God wants you. God wants to know you. He wants you to know his love. That he desires deeper relationship with you. That he wants to listen to you sing that song out of tune. That he wants to hear your prayers that go, um, uh, Lord, uh. He wants it. He wants to hear that. Yes. <laughs> right? He, he wants you to learn whatever we can. Like, like recognize we are small creatures. And, and there's only so much we can know about God, but he wants you to know it so that you can know him. He wants you to sit in contemplation of who he is and what he's done for you. He wants relationship with you. Now, we're going to do something a little unusual now. We are going to respond by praying. We're going to do an ancient prayer by a guy named Augustine, Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, he's an ancient African theologian, and he wrote a book called Confessions, and in it are, are he's, this is a guy who got the awe of God thing, and also he, he, he knew God. Um, so we're going to pray together and out loud. Pray with me. It's old-timey language, but we can all deal with that, all right? Can everybody see it? Let's pray in response to God. Alas, alas, tell me of your compassion. O Lord my God, what you are to me. Say unto my soul, I am your salvation. Speak that I may hear. Behold, Lord, the ears of my heart are before you. Open them and say unto my soul, I am your salvation. When I hear, may I run and lay hold on you. Hide not your face from me. Cramped is the dwelling of my soul. Expand it that you may enter in. It is in ruins. Restore it. There is that in it which must offend your eyes. I confess and know it, but who will cleanse it? Or to whom shall I cry but to you? Cleanse me from my secret sins, O Lord, and keep your servant from those of other men. I believe, and therefore do I speak. Lord, you know. Have I not confessed my transgressions unto you, O my God? And you have put away the iniquity of my heart. I do not contend in judgment with you, who are the truth. And I would not deceive myself, lest my iniquity lie against itself. I do not, therefore, contend in judgment with you. For if you, Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who shall stand? Amen.